One of the most difficult sections in the entire Torah comes at the outset of our Parsha, and that is the section of Eishas Yefas Toar, the beautiful captive non-Jewish woman who the Jewish soldier sees in battle and takes back to his home. Unlike what would undoubtedly happen in an ancient army, and probably still happens in many contemporary armies, where you would have had a one-time fling of kind of a sexual assault nature, and then the woman would be discarded, the Torah rather requires the man to bring this woman back to his house and to wait a month, during which time there will be a certain protocol, the details of which we'll get to in a few moments. And then, at the end, if he still wants to marry her, he converts her, she becomes a full-fledged Jew, and then he marries her, and then as husband and wife, of course, uh, they live a normal and full married life. Only after that month and that whole protocol can he marry her and be intimate with her. That is the section of the Torah known as Eishas Yefas Torah. And I'd like to share with you uh, two different approaches to this very difficult section of the Torah, that of Rashi on the one hand, and on the other hand, the Ramban. Rashi begins his comments by focusing on the statement in Chazal, in the Gemara, This whole Parsha is one of the very few and very rare examples where the Torah seems to have a concession to the baser instincts and urges of a man, of a person's Yetzirah. We know that pretty much the rest and most of the Torah is about Kedusha, Kedoshim to you, and about self-discipline and self-control and overcoming one's base urges. And yet here we have an example, perhaps there's a few others, but it's certainly a very rare phenomenon, where the Torah doesn't require us to resist or overcome our urges, rather makes a certain concession to them. True, it provides a framework, and it does elevate, but fundamentally, Rashi admits the obvious, that this is not what we would have expected, this is not fighting the Yetzirah, but in a certain sense making a concession to the Yetzirah. But given that entire outlook uh, on this, no surprise, Rashi basically thinks that since this is obviously so bidyevid and so not ideal, really all the protocol that the Torah describes in the subsequent psukim, it's all about hoping to dissuade the man from going through with this. So therefore, for example, when the Torah tells us in Pasuk Yudbet that you shave her head, so Rashi explains that you shave all of her hair so she looks ugly. You became attracted to her, that's why you brought her home. Now realize that she's not so attractive. Furthermore, the Torah says, And Rashi explains based on one of the opinions in the Medrash, it means let her nails grow long, but in a very wild, unkempt, unmanicured way to further make her look unattractive. The next Pasuk says she changes out of her clothes and puts something else on. And Rashi explains that previously she was wearing not only beautiful, but seductive clothing. And therefore, we have her put on something simple and less attractive. And then the Torah says she has to stay in the house of the man where she cries every day for a month uh, for her parents. And there again, Rashi explains that it has to be in her house and she's crying every day so that every day, day in and day out, the man, this soldier, sees this woman who used to look so beautiful, and now she's wearing simple clothing, her nails are unkept, her hair is shaved, and she's crying every day. The whole thing hopefully will be so unattractive that he'll be repulsed, and he'll change his mind, hopefully he won't want to marry her. Rashi concludes by saying that if, hopefully is the case, he doesn't marry her, he doesn't get to say, well, I'm not marrying you, but I'm going to keep you as a slave. Rather, he has to let her go free. No strings attached. So this is Rashi's overall approach. It's a tremendous compromise and concession to the Yetzir Hara, and therefore all of the details that are subsequently mentioned in the Torah are all about hopefully making this not happen, hopefully allowing the man to have second thoughts and to change his mind and not go through with it. Ramban has a different approach entirely uh, to the Parsha, and Ramban says that the key phrase is when the Torah says that she will cry for her parents. Says the Ramban, what's going on here is 
the Torah is encouraging her to mourn not only her parents, but her overall past life, her past culture, her past country, and even her past avodazar. We want her to be able to mourn it by way of psychologically closing the chapter, closing the door on that part of her life. He explains, says the Ramban, that all of these halachos that are mentioned in these psukim, they're all fitting into the pattern of nihuge avelus, ways of demonstrating and fulfilling mourning protocols. Shaving your head, plus he understands astat sipornea, according to a different opinion, which means she also has to cut her nails very short. These are all Ramban shows from other places in Tanakh. These are all actions of mourning. When she takes off her clothing, Ramban says as well, she changes into different big de'avelah, special mourning clothing. And when the Torah says she has to stay in the house, the focus is not that she should be unattractive, the way Rashi said, but rather she has to stay in the house, because every avel has to stay in the shiva house. In her case, it'll be for a whole month, a shloshim house. But that's the idea. It's not to make her unattractive, but it's to give her a whole framework for her to mourn her past life. Now, why should, be this, why should this be the case? Why are we trying to get her to mourn? So Rosh, Ramban explains, because if they end up getting married, if it would be without this, if she would just be taken off the battlefield, right to the mikvah, thrust into the mikvah and converted, that would clearly not be a sincere conversion. That's a geris ba'al karcha. And therefore, we're doing everything we can, not just to help her mourn, but to help her come to grips with the fact that her old life has ended, and she can start a new chapter in her life. We want her to be able to confront and to process in a healthy way, but hopefully in a way that's full-hearted, in a leif shalem, that she can, so to speak, say goodbye to her past life, including, says Ramban, her past devoted Zara, and therefore more fully accept the possibility of being a Jewish wife to this hopefully nice Jewish man, and accepting Judaism more wholeheartedly. All of the halachos in that waiting period of a month, says Ramban, are in order for that to happen. Because if he marries her at any point sooner than that, and without this process going forward, it's un- unclear and really unlikely that her conversion would be sincere, or that she would really be believed shalem living with him as man and wife. And says Ramban, it's certainly not appropriate to be with a woman who doesn't really want to be with you, who's still thinking of her past life, and it's certainly not appropriate to marry someone or convert someone who's not fully and wholeheartedly and sincerely converting. And therefore, although Ramban agrees with Rashi that ideally this shouldn't happen, that I think they both agree, but the fundamental problem that the various details in the halachos that the psukim are describing, that these various halachos, these details, the fundamental problem that it's coming to solve seems to be different. According to Rashi, the goal is to make her unattractive so that he won't want to marry her, and according to the Ramban, it's to help her more fully come to grips with marrying him and converting so that in case he does decide to marry her, it'll be a more appropriate conversion and a more healthy marriage. At the beginning of our Parsha, in fact, the last few psukim of the first Aliyah, we confront one of the more shocking and difficult sections in the entire Torah, and that is the Ben Sorer Umoreh, the rebellious and disobedient child. The Torah describes uh, this shocking phenomenon in which a child, a young teenager, steals from his parents and uses that money to buy meat and wine and ravenously uh, eats the meat and guzzles the wine, and it gets so bad that his parents then bring him to the Beisdin. They testify about his rebellious behavior, and seeing that there is no hope for a better future, the Torah describes the shocking conclusion of this episode in which the community, the Bezdin, the whole community, stone the child to death in order to cleanse the community of this evil, and to make sure that a message is sent out to the entire community far and near 
that this is not behavior that we would ever uh, encounter and to warn parents, presumably to hopefully do better with their own children. As I said, this is really a painful, shocking, and some might even say troubling uh, section in the Torah. And it's not a surprise, therefore, that the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin on Daf Ayin Aleph tells us regarding this Ben Sor Amora, that never was, that never will be a Ben Sor Amora. It's comforting on the one hand, because the Parsha itself is so difficult. On the other hand, it begs the question, well, if there never was and never will be a Ben Sorer Amore, why do we have a section in the Torah devoted to it? To which the Gemara itself answers, that it's in order to pro- provide us an opportunity of more material to learn and therefore receive reward. Now, certainly on a simple level, this could be understood, and I think this is true, that the more Psukim you have in our Parsha, the more Dapim you have in the Gemara, Masecha Sanhedrin has pages of Gemara that deals with this section, that's more opportunities for Torah study, which means more opportunities for reward. However, in a brilliant insight, Rav Shimshin Rafal Hirsch suggests that there's actually a much deeper message. That if you want to know what there is drosh, what should we study so that we can be makabal schar, really what it's telling us is we can learn from all the mistakes that must have taken place in the Ben Sora and we can kind of reverse engineer and say, well, let's learn from this tragedy what was done wrong there, so we can learn what is what we can do right. How can we be a better parent? We can learn from the failures of the Ben Sora Mora. In other words, as Rav Hirsch, the Psukim here are in themselves a rich source of pedagogic truths and teachings that will benefit parents if we mind them and if we look at them through that proper lens. And I think this is really an incredible paradigm shift and a brilliant insight of Rav Hirsch because it takes what would otherwise be an inexplicable, shocking, and even painful section of the Torah and gives us another way of looking at it so that we can actually uh, learn and be uplifted and hopefully become better parents and community leaders from learning the messages and lessons of this section. So I want to share with you briefly three specific points that Hirsch makes uh, in the context of Arab Sukkim. Number one, he quotes the Gemara also in Sanhedrin, that tells us that the whole phenomenon of Ben Sora would only exist if this behavior and his reporting about him to the Beitin took place within the first three months after his Bar Mitzvah. In other words, says Rav Hirsch, you see the Torah is identifying that this is a very critical time. At the moment of the first steps that he is taking as a Jewish man, the first quarter of a year after he has turned Bar Mitzvah, it's specifically then when the future will be determined in some sense. At the very moment, says Rav Hirsch, in the German translated into English, which a typical young male is being filled with awakened sensuality, it's dafka then, says the Torah, where we are expected as parents to break through and provide a good guidance and put the young man on the right track. In other words, what Rav Hirsch is saying is that if you have a solid foundation, there can be one step forward, two steps back, and no one's perfect, and we can help the child. However, if this first few months after he's become an adult, reached the age of Jewish maturity, if that is rotten, so when you have a rotten core, when you have a bad foundation, then you can be sure that the future will also be bad. It's only if you have a good foundation that we have a fighting chance, despite the natural challenges and ups and downs of life, that ultimately good will prevail. And of course the message for us is to identify and to realize as parents and as community leaders that in fact... There are stages of a child's life which are more critical than others because they are tone setters. Those early stages after the bar mitzvah, and I would say if we're gleaning this for larger messages, 
It's equally true for a girl as well. Those early stages after the bas mitzvah, those are crucial, crucial times in a child's life. And more broadly, there are other stages, other beginnings, which are tone setters, which we have to be especially sensitive to as parents. Secondly, says Rav Hirsch, the Pasuk says that when the parents come to the Beisdin, they say that the son, their son is Einenu Shomea Bikolenu. He did not listen to our voice. And Rav Hirsch highlights the fact that the Torah did not say that the parents say Einenu Shomea L'Kol Aviv, L'Kol Imo. But rather, not that it's to the mother or the father, but he didn't listen to our voice. And Rav Hirsch sees this as an allusion to the fact that the parents have to speak with a unified, single message to their, parent, to their child. Only then do we have a real good chance of having successful, raising our children successfully. But if the parents are giving mixed messages, they hear one thing from Aviv and one thing from Imo, then one could certainly not say that it's the child's fault to be confused and, God forbid, become religiously astray. Again, there are no guarantees. But says our first, we're learning good practices. And it has to be kolenu. It doesn't mean the parents have to agree on every matter, but they have to figure out a way to present a united front and show one voice to their children. And third, and lastly, Rav Hirsch notes that the Torah describes the behavior of this boy is zolel v'sovei. He is ravenously eating meat and guzzling wine. And this highlights, says Rav Hirsch, that the problem that's considered so irredeemable is the animal-like desire for material pleasures. And especially at this age, which sets the tone for the future, it is this what the Torah thinks is irredeemable. Not necessarily bad hashkafa, not putting on tefillin one day, as bad as something like that would be, but rather the animal-like desire for material pleasures. And says first, we should learn from this as parents, that especially when we have children of an impressionable age, not to make good eating and drinking the important item at home, but rather we have to show passion for religious ideals and not passion for the zolo of the sovea, the material items of life. In addition to the more well-known kitetse that comes at the outset of our parsha, where our parsha get its, gets its name from, in the middle of the parsha, toward, towards the beginning of the Ravi Aliyah, we have yet another mention of kitetse of going out to battle. And here the Torah tells us in Parachav Gimel, Pasuk Yud, kitetse machane olevecha, when your encampment, when the Jewish camp, the Jewish soldiers go out to war against an enemy, v'neshmarta mikol davara, we are commanded to guard against anything evil or impure. And the Pesukim go on to tell us how it is imperative that the Jewish army guard its camp and its encampment from anything impure, immodest, or unsanua, because, as the section concludes in Pasuk Kazvav, because God, the Spirit of Hashem, is walking through, is present in your encampment, He's there to protect you, so you should win the battle. And therefore, your encampment has to be holy. We don't want Hashem to see anything impure or immodest, and then He would turn away from you. The Sfasemes, in a very beautiful and penetrating piece analyzing this section, starts with the assumption which is mentioned by many thinkers, not only Hasidish thinkers, but others as well, that this section is actually to be understood on a deeper metaphoric level, referring not just to the actual military battle and the halachos for a Jewish army, which undoubtedly is the pshat of the sukkim, but on a deeper metaphoric level, it's referring to the milchemes hayetzer, the battle that each one of us has to undergo 
with, our own, with ourselves, the battle that goes on inside each and every one of us as we battle against our more base desires, our Yitzhahara, our urges to hopefully overcome those and be able to stay loyal to the dictates and values of the Torah and to live a holy and modest life. So thus understood, the Sasemis asks a number of sensitive questions based on nuances in the Torah text. For example, in the beginning it said that we have to guard the camp. But the word that's used is v'nishmarta, which as the Svasemis noticed, is actually nifal. It's a passive, a reflexive form. L'chore, it should have said v'shamarta, you should guard. Furthermore, at the end of the section, it talks about Hashem being mitaleich bekerb machanecha, walking through your camp, so to speak, the Spirit of God. But that's also nifal. It really should have said mehaleich. Again, it's figurative no matter what. It's talking about Hashem. But the more proper form would have been mehaleich. Furthermore, at the end of the section, it says l'yirabacha, which focuses on not seeing anything impure in the camp. But really ask the Svasemis, it should have said, Lo It shouldn't exist in the camp, it shouldn't be in the camp. After all, the real prohibition is not seeing, but having anything impure at all. No matter who sees it, just being in the camp is the problem. So why focus on Yira? So, in light of these questions, Svasemis gives the following insight. And he starts with the following assumption, which everything flows from this. Says the Svasemis, the very act of a person going to war, of fighting, not giving up, not resting on his laurels, not just being reactive, but actually going out there and fighting, that very act itself gives a person strength. When you decide to fight for something, you summon all of your strengths, as opposed to if you just respond passively, reactively, says Svasemes, that creates weakness. It's not just that you fight to preserve your strength, the very act of fighting creates even more strength. It's a catalyst. Therefore, the Pasuk starts with ki when you go out to war. You don't just wait for the war to come to you. You take it to the war, to the enemy. You're aggressive. Don't just rest. Don't wait for the Yetzir Hara in this metaphoric understanding. Don't wait for the evil inclination to attack you, to try to trip you up. Rather, you should be on the attack. And by doing this, by being aggressive, by being intensive, and not just being passive, mamela you'll draw on wellsprings of strength you may not even know you possessed. It's not just that you'll have the strength if you are tempted by being aggressive and preemptive, you'll actually create even more strength with which to do battle against the Yisr And therefore, says the Sasemis, that's why the Pasuk says, V'nishmarta, which we asked, seems to be um, in the wrong form. It just said, V'shamarta. But says the Sasemis, no, that's the idea. By saying V'nishmarta, it is an allusion to the fact that by going out to do battle, Mamela, that itself creates the result of Shmira, Vinishmarta, because by the very act of going out to battle, that will create the reality of Shmira, because as we said, the act of being aggressive and preemptive and fighting the battle, instead of waiting the battle to come to you, that creates even more strength and kokos. Furthermore, when the Pasuk talks about who goes to war, the Machaneh, the camp goes to war. That's kind of a weird phraseology. Uh, Sasemis explains because what's being alluded to in this particular context is that when you go out to war, you can't do it alone. Every division of the military, every part of the different types of soldiers, every weapon at your disposal has to be used. So too, he says, when it comes to the spiritual war, a person must summon all of his limbs, not just part. Must summon every aspect of your personality, not just part. You can't serve Hashem with just some of your limbs or some aspect of your personality of your life, but not others. In fact, everything has to go into your Avodos Hashem, in your If you realize that everything depends on this battle, your spiritual life, your eternity, depends on your success in winning the Melchamas 
then you'll leave nothing to chance. You'll summon every weapon at your disposal. And if a person does that, and that will, as we said, stimulate and arouse the kochos that you might not even have known you had, the inner spiritual spark which resides inside each and every one of us, as the section ends, when it talks about Hashem's spirit being in the camp, means inside each and every one of us, by having this aggressive posture and fighting the that will make the spirit of Hashem, it will reside, it will be stimulated inside each and every one of us. And the Pasuk concludes very beautifully, and we asked, why is the focus on Yira, not seeing? But says this because this is, so to speak, the cherry on top. If you really do summon all of your efforts, put all of your chiyas into this effort of fighting the Melchamas Yetzer and to your Avodos Hashem, then you will be successful not only in avoiding sin and living a good life, but says this Vasemes will also be zochet to even remove temptation completely. In a certain sense, it will be out of sight and therefore spiritually out of mind. These psukim therefore prescribe and describe a successful strategy for living an ideal religious life. We're all familiar with, I hope, the importance of gratitude, hakardatov, having appreciation for people who do good things for us, saying thank you when it's appropriate. However, I think there are a number of sources that point out that while that's true, there may be an additional and deeper dimension to the significance of hakardatov from the Torah's perspective. The great medieval work of philosophy and Musr, the Chovas Halavavos, points out that not only is it important to be self-aware enough to appreciate all of the many, many kindnesses and blessings that God has given in our lives, that's step one, but he says mayhem, but by going through that process, becoming aware, self-reflective enough, and appreciating all the blessings that God has bestowed upon us, Yekabla Avodaso Ba'avuram, through that awareness of all the things that Hashem has done for us, Ba'avuram, because of that, Yekabal Avodaso will have a commitment to Hashem, will keep the Torah. In other words, what is the Chavos Lavava saying in a few short words? That the moral backbone, the moral basis, the moral imperative to keep the Torah, to follow Hashem's ways, to be a devoted Jew, the basis of that, the moral responsibility devolves upon us. Why? Ultimately, out of a sense of gratitude. If we have a Kardato for everything Hashem has done for us, it reasons, it follows, that we need to quote-unquote pay him back by doing what he's asked us to do. Another great work of medieval Jewish thought, the Shari Tshuva of Rabbeinu Yonah, points out that the flip side is really true, and it's not the opposite, it's more just the flip side of the same coin. He points out it's not just that Akar Tov is part of every mitzvah that we're doing, but the opposite is true. Anytime we sin, whether we realize it or not, in every sin that we do, whether it's large or small, there's an element of being a kafuitov, of being an ingrate, of not having gratitude. After all, if we genuinely had gratitude towards Hashem, how could we rebel against Him? How could we spit in His face, as it were, and sin if we really had as much gratitude as we ought to have? Not only that, but as the Tomer Devorah, a more uh, Kabbalistically oriented work, points out, every time we sin, the very moment we're sinning, we're using the blessings and the strengths and the talents and abilities Hashem has given us to rebel and spit in his face. For example, Hashem gave us the gift of speech. And if we abuse that gift, not only are we doing something wrong, but we're doing something wrong with the very gifts that Hashem has given us. What greater demonstration of ingratitude, of being a kafoy tov, could there be than that? So, first of all, this is already a very important insight for us to have. That gratitude, a tov, is not just something that's been on the chavero. It's not just about saying thank you and being polite. There's a 
spiritual dimension to it as well in part of our relationship with Hashem. But I think a number of sources, including some very fascinating psukim in our parsha, will demonstrate that there may even be something more to it than that. In Perak of Gimel, we read in psukim Dalad through Hay that if someone would convert from the ancient nations of Amun and Moab, they can never truly marry into the Jewish people, they can never integrate fully into the Jewish people. And the Torah tells us why. Because when we were leaving Egypt, we just needed some bread, some water, we need some basic sustenance, and the ancient peoples of Amun and Moab wouldn't help us. That act of cruelty that they demonstrated to us all the way back then, the Torah testifies, on a subtle level, is ingrained in all of their descendants that can never truly be expunged, and therefore we don't want that dimension of cruelty ever to creep into the Jewish people. As perhaps uh, hard or that is, as that is to understand, or surprising as that is to the modern ear, the problem is really when we continue reading a few psukim later, because in Pasuk Ches we read that another nation, the ancient Egyptians, if someone would convert from them, Lotus Ayv Mitzri, Kigera Yisa Ba'artso, there we don't despise that person, we don't hold anything against them at all, can marry right in, totally integrate. After all, we were once upon a time, we were strangers in their land. In other words, they took us in, they hosted us for 200 plus years. We had to have Akar Satov, as Rashi points out, because the Egyptians took care of us for all those years. But let's think about that for a second. Does that make any sense? We're more accepting of the descendant of Egypt than we are of Ammon and Moab? What the Egyptians did to us is much worse than what Ammon and Moab did. But it's not only is it that it's much worse, what kind of akaras atov do we have to the Egyptians? They weren't allowing us to stay in their nation because they were good people, altruistically. They did it because we were the backbone of their economy. First Yosef with his wisdom, and then cheap slave labor, which held up their economy and built their pyramids. They weren't doing it because they were nice people or altruistically. They had selfish reasons. And yet, we're told we have to have akaras atov to them for that? How do we understand that? Another question. We know that Moshe was told he couldn't be the direct instrument to bring the first three plagues. He couldn't hit the river to bring the blood of the frogs, and he couldn't hit the desert sand to bring out the lice. Why? Chazal famously teaches us, Rashi quotes it in Parsha Shmos, because these things saved Moshe's life. When he was a baby, he was protected by the river, and when he killed the Egyptian policeman, it hid the dead body and allowed him opportunity to escape to Midian. And therefore he had to have a karsatov. Moshe had gratitude towards the desert, towards the river, therefore he couldn't hit it. Many of us remember learning this already when we were in kindergarten, a very young age. And it's a very sweet teaching. But let's think about it for a second. It makes no sense. What does that mean to say Moshe has gratitude towards an inanimate object? He can't hit the river all those years later. He can't hit the desert all those years later because once upon a time it, something good in his life happened through the river, through the desert. Akarasatov, gratitude towards an inanimate object? What does that mean? So I think the answer to both of these questions can be found in a teaching that is mentioned <coughs> by both Yonasan Ibshitz and the Yaros Dvash, as well as the Mechtav Me'eliyahu. We have to realize, they say, <coughs> that Akarasatov is in fact a defining aspect of who we are. It's a Mida Banefesh, and either you have it or you don't have it. It's not something that can be just turned on or off, and it certainly can't be borrowed. We have to cultivate looking at life through gratitude eyes, if you will, through rose-colored glasses in the sense of always with gratitude. If you go through life thinking, it's kimtmir, magiali, everything comes to me, then you won't be grateful to another person or to Hashem. But if you realize that everything ultimately comes from Hashem, bashkach abratis, and I really deserve nothing, everything is a kindness that's being done to me by God 
or through his messengers, people in my life, then I will have gratitude. And the nature of gratitude is either you have it or you don't. And therefore we have to be grateful, the Torah teaches us, to everyone and even everything. Because once we start being ungrateful to certain things, it'll cascade to other things. We must be grateful to everything so we can develop and have this midah for everything. In this week's Parsha, we come across one of the Torah's presentations of the prohibition of charging interest. We read in Perach of Gimel, Pasachaf, if you are lending somebody money, you shouldn't charge them interest. But not only in that kind of loan, but similarly the Pasuk continues, whether you're lending food or anything that you might lend, you should not charge interest when doing so. It is prohibited to charge a fellow Jew interest on a loan. Interestingly, Chazal in the Medrash actually go to great lengths to paint how just how severe and how terrible and significant this prohibition actually is. Working off of a pasuk in the Navi Yechezkel and Perak Yirches, which says, B'neshech nasan v'tarbis lakach v'chai, lo yichia. Someone who borrows and charges um, interest on loans, v'chai is living, lo yichia will not live. It seems to be a little bit of a riddle. It's a very enigmatic pasuk. So the Medrash has different interpretations of that double language of living, living at the end of the Pasuk. And one of the more powerful ones is that the Medrash says, Misha The first half of the Pasuk is referring to someone who in their lifetime charges interest. Lo haba. The end of the Pasuk is saying, okay, if you lived with Ribis, lo yichia, but you will not be reborn. And this is an allusion, says the Medrash, to the fact that we know, of course, everyone dies. But what we believe in, and we daven every day, every Shemon Esrei, we daven for and we believe in, the resuscitation of the dead, one of the great mysteries of the universe. Obviously no one rationally can comprehend that possibility, but it's an article of faith, one of the 13 principles of faith, and we daven for it every day. The resuscitation of the dead, So says the Medrash, someone who in this world, in this lifetime, charged interest, they will not merit Olam Haba. They will be disqualified from that ultimate Tchiyas HaMesim. The question is, why this should be so? Why are we so strict? Why do we take such a drastic approach, be so negative and so condemning of a person who charges interest? Okay, it's prohibited. Okay, you shouldn't do it. But why if, of all sins, that's the one that's chosen out for being disqualified from Tchiyas HaMesim? A person who committed a capital offense, who transgressed even severe prohibitions such as Chilol uh, Shabbos, or uh, eating on Yom Kippur and the like, that person potentially could be eligible for Tchiyas HaMesim, for resuscitation of the dead, but yet someone who lent with ribbons, who charged interest, that person can't? It doesn't seem to be uh, logical. It certainly doesn't seem to be proportionate. What is going on? So in the beautiful Sefer, Darash Mordechai, he quotes an idea based on Rav Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, the famous rabbi of the old Yeshuv in Yerushalayim. And he his starting point is actually a mitzvah that also appears in this week's Parsha, but using an insight there, borrowed from there, he applies it to the issue of interest. And I'm referring to the mitzvah of Shiluach HaKan, the idea that if you come across a mother bird hovering over the, the nest, where, they have, where you see the, the chicks, or the, uh, the baby chicks, or the eggs, so the Torah tells us that we have a very famous halacha, that you can't take the eggs and the mother at the same time, first you have to send away the mother, and only then you can take the eggs. And the question is, why? You know, of all, of all uh, things, why is that uh, the commandment? And the simplest 
and most intuitive understanding is that there's a certain uh, mean-spiritedness or cruelty if you were to have the mother witness you taking her children. Okay, I understand that. That makes sense. However, if you think about it, it seems to still be somewhat out of place. After all, if we're talking about a kosher bird, you're allowed to kill the mother. You, you, we, eat, we eat birds just like we eat animals. So if that were allowed, but uh, something much more subtle like the mother seeing us take the eggs, that were not allowed. If we're so worried about the mother's feelings, I have a feeling the mother would prefer not being killed, in all seriousness. So that, we must be missing something. So in fact, says Rabbi Chaim Zonnefeld, we're missing a very important point. The real issue is as follows. Typically, to catch a bird is not so easy. Birds are quick, and they obviously can fly, and it can be very difficult for a human being to trap a bird, to catch a bird. However, he says, if you come across a bird that's sitting on her eggs, sitting on her chicks, protecting them in the nest, then that mother bird is very reluctant to fly away because she's protecting her children. It pains the bird to run away when a human being is coming to take uh, her eggs, her chicks, and therefore, says Rabbi Zonnefeld, the real prohibition, the real nature, excuse me, of the, of the mitzvah of Shulach HaKan is that we are not allowed to take advantage of the bird's pain, to take advantage of her compassion and of her moment of vulnerability with her children, with her baby chicks, or eggs there. There's something particularly cruel about that action, taking advantage of someone's desperation, taking advantage of someone's pain. In a similar vein, they therefore suggest, that's what the Torah is highlighting, excuse me, the Medrash is highlighting in its very strong condemnation of people who charge interest. After all, we know in the modern economy, uh, often it is the most wealthy people who are taking out loans because they're using it to obtain liquid capital, to invest, and to hopefully be successful in business. However, uh, historically, more typically, and certainly in the conception of the Torah, the typical person who is borrowing money is someone who is on the opposite end of the spectrum, someone who's desperately poor, in dire straits, and needs this little you know, money to somehow start over to prepare for his basic needs, to try to figure out some kind of a parnasa. And therefore, it says, the Darsh Mordechai, says Yosef Zonefeld, to take advantage of a person, someone who's so desperate that they need to borrow money, to, t- try to, take, to try to make money off of another person, to take advantage of that kind of situation, to take advantage of that person's desperation and suffering, there's a certain despicable character trait, there's a certain cruelty in that, which is very parallel to what it would be if you took advantage of the mother bird's desperation and sensitivity when she's protecting her children. To take advantage of someone else's desperation, to try to profit off of someone else's pain and vulnerability and weakness, there's something uniquely disqualifying about such behavior, because that's a fundamental character flaw. And therefore, that is why, even though many other sins are terrible, of course, but the cruelty here, which is, is what is disqualifying, looking to profit off of another person's misery to take advantage, whether it's the bird, or in this case, the poor person who needs the loan. And therefore, he suggests that's why there's unique, harsh condemnation for someone who lends with interest.